want to welcome you to uh, Plum Creek Chapel. Great to be back uh, at our midweek service and really looking forward to um, resuming our study of how to read and understand the Bible. Uh, it's been three weeks since we were last uh, together, and I want to just mention a couple of, uh, of things here. Uh, yesterday, we did a podcast with Christian Underground News Network, as we normally do on Tuesdays, and it was the topic was Inventors of Evil Things. So that's available uh, wherever you find our podcast or on the Not By Works app. I encourage you to listen to that. And then uh, since it's been a while, I want to mention to mainly our online viewers, either live streamers or those who watch the videos later, that we're uh, really getting deep into our series of eschatology, uh, an overview of the end times. And this uh, particular coming Sunday, that's at 9 o'clock on Sunday mornings, we're going to move into the latter part of the tribulation and what the book of Revelation has to say about Babylon. Uh, we looked at chapter 14 and 144,000 last Sunday, and we want to kind of look at chapters uh, 17 and 18 and then leading up to the second coming, and then we'll get into the millennium and lots to come. Good stuff uh, there. That's Sundays at 9, and of course this whole series is available at the Not By Works website, uh, the videos or the podcast. Podcasts are available on all the podcast channels. And then for those of you here uh, at uh, Plum Creek, reminder about our Christmas Eve service, the candlelight service. We are going to try to stream that. I know we've been having some issues with our streaming. We are trying to troubleshoot that and work that. I think it's a combination of more people trying to stream and also some bandwidth issues that uh, may have come up here uh, locally, but we're working on it. But either way, we will record that service, so that'll be posted. Uh, but it's always a special night here at Plum Creek Chapel for our candlelight service. Don't forget, I mentioned the app. You can download the free app. Go to our website, click the icon there on the carousel, the highlight carousel. It'll explain exactly how to download it. And then that gives you one place to go. You can catch all of our videos, all of our podcasts. Anytime something new is posted, it's automatically available there. You don't have to search for it on a website or search for it on a podcast provider. So uh, this is our eighth uh, session in this, and tonight we're going to actually begin to get into some of the nuts and bolts. Uh, we've talked about the big picture. We've talked about how the Bible is God's way of saying, here I am, look at me, and we've talked about just how we got our Bible a little bit. We're going to review some of that in a moment. But as is our custom, we want to take a look at a passage that is often misinterpreted or misunderstood. And uh, I don't think we've done this one before. I know I've mentioned it a few times over the last year and a half, but uh, I thought it would be a good one to, uh, uh, to kind of reacquaint us with the importance of context. But you're familiar with the words of, of Christ in the Olivet Discourse when he says, He who endures to the end shall be saved. Now, that verse has really been abused over the centuries by those who believe that our salvation, our eternal salvation, is somehow contingent upon our ability to hang on to it, work hard, endure in good works, persevere in good works, those types of things. And you can understand why they might point to that short, simple, one-sentence verse, because in English, uh, it certainly sounds like if you want to go to heaven, you better endure. I mean, is that a fair statement? Is that at first pass, is that kind of what you might come to mind, right? Um, but of course, we know the Bible wasn't written in English, and this is why it is so critical to compare Scripture with Scripture. So let's look at some context here of, of Matthew 24. If you recall, um, Matthew's account of Jesus' famous sermon on Wednesday night of Passion Week, the night before he was betrayed in the garden, uh, is found in Matthew 24 and 25. It's the longest version of his sermon in the Bible. Uh, Luke and Mark's accounts are shorter. Uh, and he starts out in the first 14 verses by giving some general overview of signs that will accompany his return. The Jews, the disciples had asked, what will be the sign of his coming? When will the kingdom come? When will we finally get to inaugurate this long-awaited uh, Davidic kingdom that the prophets of old talked about you know, millennia before Christ? And so the whole sermon is an answer to that question. And he begins by giving some general signs in, in up to verse 8, and then beginning in verse 9, he talks about some specific signs like the abomination of desolation. But when you get to verse 9, 
here is uh, the key context leading up to verse 13. Then, that is, after the abomination of desolation, which happens at the midpoint of the tribulation, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. And then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. And then it's right on the heels of that, he says, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now, clearly the context, even if this is all we had, were these few verses, verses 9 to 13, is life and death. He's, he's saying, you know, this, it's going to get really bad. A lot of you are going to be persecuted even to the point of death and martyrdom. But if you endure to the end, you'll be saved. So right away, we ought to know that he's not talking here about eternal salvation. But we can also discern this. If you remember the five steps, let me throw them up here for you real quick. The five steps in the Bible study process, you start with the Bible as we're doing and look at a verse. Then you expand the context a bit because, you know, the context determines uh, the meaning. So you want to stretch out like we did for a few verses. But eventually, it, or sometimes it's very helpful to look at the teaching of Scripture as a whole. It's called the concentric circles of, of context. But after you've looked at that first verse, then you compare Scripture with Scripture at step two. And then, and only then, do you formulate uh, the clear uh, belief statement. So I want us to do that. The key here is what does the word saved mean? Is he talking about entrance into heaven and eternal life? If so, this verse would fly in the face of hundreds of other verses in the New Testament that make salvation eternal salvation, a free gift uh, received only by faith and not contingent upon our performance or our behavior or anything else. Um, so the, 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 the key here is that the English word save and salvation, they're not technical terms that always refer to individual eternal salvation. Uh, in fact, in Greek, it's the word sozo is the verb, soterios is the noun, in the back of my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, we have an appendix that deals with every occurrence of these in the New Testament. But let's just look at a few. In Matthew 8, 25, the disciples go and wake Jesus up on the boat when he had fallen asleep. And the storm arose on the Sea of Galilee, if you remember that story. And they said, Lord, save us. We're perishing. Now, they did not mean, as should be self-evident, Lord, give us eternal life. We're going to hell. There was danger there was a storm. They were in temporal danger. Their physical lives were in danger. That's what they meant by save. In Mark, uh, uh, the, the man comes up to him. My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed. Same exact word, but the English translators in Mark 5.23 chose to use the word healed because that's a better translation in the context. He's talking about physical healing. Same thing. Uh, talking about Lazarus, when he had gotten a report that Lazarus uh, had died, and the disciples were a bit confused, and they said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. Same word, same verb, sozo in Greek, talking about physical uh, deliverance. When Paul was on the ship headed uh, to, uh, uh, that got shipwrecked uh, just off of Malta, the island of Malta, uh, it said when neither, this is Luke's account, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest beat upon us. This was when Luke had joined the party. He was with them, so he's an eyewitness here. All hope that we would be saved was finally given up. Now, are we honestly to think that a writer of Scripture like Luke and his traveling companion, the Apostle Paul, no less, near the end of his life, were giving up hope that they would end up in heaven? Nope talking about physical deliverance, temporal deliverance. Same context, Paul told the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. You know, the, the boat workers were bailing, and he says, you can't be saved. Well, that's an interesting requirement for eternal salvation. I'm not sure how I could ever meet that criteria, Ken. Um, uh, in John chapter 12, this is Jesus himself. Remember this? in the garden my soul is troubled and what shall i say father save me from this hour is jesus here speaking of the fact that he was going to go to hell and he wants to go to heaven i don't think so i don't think god himself the eternal son of god ever feared hell but in his humanness he he felt the weight and pressure of physical death that was about 
to happen. So context always determines meaning, and, and the word save can mean physical deliverance or can mean eternal deliverance. Um, when you see the words save or salvation in your English Bible, you should always ask, saved from what? Are we talking about hell here? Well, indeed, there are some passages in Scripture where the deliverance that's being spoken of is deliverance or salvation for an individual sinner from the penalty of sin. For example, at the end of Acts 2, uh, when we get a progress report after the day of Pentecost sermon that Peter preached, it says the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. How were they being saved? They were believing the gospel message. Or in Acts 4.12, there is no there is salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be what saved. Clearly talking about eternal salvation, rescued from the penalty of sin. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, Since the wisdom of God, in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who what? Believe. Again, you've heard me say this hundreds of times, but 160 plus times in the New Testament, eternal salvation is conditioned upon faith alone. And here we see him talking about that. Or Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Clearly, grace and faith tell us we're talking here about eternal salvation. Or the theme verse of not by works ministries, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. All of these are the same word, but they, they can mean completely different things depending on the context. Paul said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. What's he saving sinners from? The penalty of sin, which is eternal separation in a literal place of torment called hell. Or Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it, the gospel, is the power of God to salvation for those who believe. So clearly in these cases we're talking about eternal salvation. But if we go back to our test case here, what Jesus is saying is those who survive this incredible persecution and all of this martyrdom and this wrath of the beast that's going to be unfolding at the very end, they'll be saved. They'll be delivered into the kingdom because it's at that moment at the end of the seven years that Jesus says, come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom. And the ones who are still alive, they've endured all of this bloodshed and survived. They will get into the kingdom. Does that make sense? So very important verse because people will use this verse to make you think that you cannot know for sure whether you're going to heaven until you die because you don't know if you endured enough. Yeah. The people that are saved will also have to have Absolutely. So, so the question is, will the people who are saved that Jesus is talking about here because they survived physically to the end of it, they also will have had to have faith in Christ to be able to enter the kingdom. So he's talking here about the end of the seven years. He's given an overview of the events, including the abomination of desolation. And he says to the future nation of Israel, if you survive to the end, you'll be delivered into the kingdom. In that moment when Christ comes back, there's only two groups of people on the earth, believers and unbelievers. You're either a sheep or a goat. To the sheep, he's going to say, enter the kingdom. And to the goats, he's going to say, depart from me into the everlasting fire. Now that's a little bit of a summary because in reality the believing Jews and the believing Gentiles when Christ comes back get into the kingdom a different way uh, physically. Jesus says that in the Old Testament prophets repeatedly said that for believing Israel they will be supernaturally picked up physically and deposited in the kingdom of Israel. Uh, in fact Jesus says in Matthew 24 verse uh, 31 when he comes back he says he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect, talking about Israel, uh, from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. That's the fulfillment of several Old Testament prophecies like Deuteronomy 30, verse 3, and Isaiah 27, verse 13. So, so you're correct. He's assuming that they believe the gospel. If they haven't believed the gospel and taken the mark of the beast, they're history anyway. But he's talking to those who want to know, hey, when are we going to get to experience this kingdom we've been waiting for for so many generations? Here's how. It's not going to be an easy road for seven years, but if you get to the end, you'll, you'll survive and you'll be in the kingdom physically. By the way, believing Jews who die either during the tribulation or who died in years gone by, like David and you know, Moses and Solomon and people like that, 
they'll be in the kingdom too, but they're going to be resurrected and be in the kingdom in their glorified bodies. In, in Matthew 24 and 25, he's just talking about the, those people alive on earth. And it's not that complicated. Those who endure to the end are going to be delivered into the kingdom. How can you be delivered into the kingdom if you're dead? You can't be. Um, you might, if you're a believer, you might be resurrected and come back with Christ like the church will. You, uh, we know that uh, at the second coming, that's when Old Testament saints get their glorified bodies. But uh, he's not talking about that here. So hopefully that's clear. Yeah. So these were not people who were raptured? No. Mm -mm. These were not people who were raptured. The church is raptured prior to the seven-year tribulation. We talked about that a little bit Sunday. Uh, but Daniel's 70th week pertains only to Israel. The 70th week of Daniel constitutes the prophetic wrath of God. And the church is guaranteed not to be a part of the wrath of God. So we are rescued before that great and terrible day of the Lord. Does not mean we won't face difficulties and struggles and trials and persecutions. For 2,000 years, Christians have been martyred repeatedly. And there are more martyrs today for the faith. So it's not that the rapture is some kind of an escape clause from trouble. But it absolutely is an escape clause from the 70th week of Daniel. We will not be here during that time. These are second chance saints then. Yeah, these are people that, uh, remember we talked Sunday. I don't know, were you here Sunday? Yes. Yeah, so we talked about those 144,000 missionaries and they're going to reap a great harvest of souls who believe the gospel. And people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language, not just Jews. So yeah, these are people who got saved after the rapture. Not, not necessarily limited to those who got a second chance because some of those will be those who never heard to begin with. But yes, a good number of them, we can assume, will be those who heard the gospel before the rapture, rejected it, didn't believe, were left behind, and then responded to the gospel favorably after the rapture. So any more questions about that? Yes. one way or the other. Yes, like, they well, have. Well, yeah, creation and that. So I, maybe that answers. Yeah, Romans 1 answers. So the question is, what about those who've never heard? And uh, going through the tribulation. Yeah, it, it, the only hope for anyone on earth from Adam forward is to personally, explicitly believe. Abraham believed God and he was declared right, positionally righteous, right? Um, not having heard doesn't give you a pass because Romans 1 very plainly states that we're all aware that there's a God. He's made himself known to mankind. And if we respond to that general revelation, then he will send special revelation to make sure we hear the gospel. So that by nature, mankind, uh, you know, knows there's a God, but many reject him. So um, if not hearing the gospel guaranteed someone would go to heaven, then really the worst thing the church could do is share the gospel. Because then we share it, now they're accountable. So we should basically be working hard to make sure there's as many people as possible that never hear. No, don't tell them. They might reject it. Don't tell them. They're automatically in. You know. But no, the, the Jesus Great Commission is going to all the world and preach. Because everybody is under condemnation. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And you know we're born dead in our trespasses and sin, Ephesians 2.1. And it's our job to urgently... You know, as we try to do it, not by works ministries, uh, clearly, accurately, and urgently share the gospel with everybody. So, um, okay, well, so remember, the smaller the passage being studied, the greater the chance of error. So, if you pull that one verse, you know, oh, uh, he who endures the end will be saved. Man, you can go off all kinds of directions and teach all kinds of false doctrine and suggest that a person has to really persevere. They got it's all on them. Never mind what Jesus did for him at the cross. It's on you. You know, he didn't mean it when he said, I give you eternal life. What he meant was, I give you conditional eternal life or potential eternal life. But you have to endure or you're not going to heaven. And sadly, there's a whole segment of evangelical Christianity that holds that view. And it's led to uh, really devastating consequences. So, um, but that's because they fail to see the full context and understand it uh, you know, in the context in which Jesus was saying it. So uh, again, here is our five steps. So I don't want to spend too much time on this because I want to get to some of the 
specifics. We're going to start down that road tonight and for the next several weeks. But five steps, start with the Bible, compare Scripture with Scripture, then be, formulate your belief statement, then you put that belief statement to use by rejecting or accepting truth claims from the world, and most importantly, you apply what you've learned to your own life so that you conform to the image of Christ. The goal of Bible study is a changed life, not just to get smarter. We said the part in yellow really constitutes the development phase, and the part in green is the implementation phase of the Bible study process. It's not enough just to study it, you've got to put it to use, so we're to use another term, meaning and, meaning and application, or meaning and significance. You know, we talked about that. So we went through this uh, last time, and I know it's been a while, but uh, we talked about how it all started with truth in the eternal creator's mind, and he wanted to communicate something about himself to the world, to his creation. So starting in about 1446 B.C. with the Exodus, God tapped Moses as the human author, mm -hmm to pen the first five books of the Bible, and that process is called revelation. The Holy Spirit carried Moses along as he wrote the first five books of the Bible. That's called inspiration. Then over the next 1,500 years, the Bible was written, ending with the book of Revelation in 95-96 A.D. Totally different, you know, original language, Greek by that time. And uh, then in the first two or 300 years of the church, the church did some gold mining and searching for gold, if you will, to discover which of these documents that were floating around were, in fact, the inspired truth of God. Then, having then discovered them, remember, the church didn't declare what the Bible was. The church discovered it. God declared it. Having discovered it, then, uh, through the process of divine preservation, we now have contained within all of our ancient manuscripts the original text of God's Word, when the quill hit the sheepskin, when God burst through the eternal realm into time, space, and matter and said, here I am, look at me. We have what he said. However, we don't have them labeled and preserved in a special glass box as the autograph, the original document. What we have are copies, and so we have to go through and study uh, these manuscripts and do what's called textual criticism to kind of determine uh, which ones reflect the original. Then having done that, which is not that complicated, frankly, 99% um, uh, of the time it's just crystal clear what, which was the original, then we write our modern English versions today. But then it doesn't stop there. We, through the process of interpretation, which is what we're studying about in this series, we begin to understand the Bible, and then we begin to apply the Bible so that it changes our lives. And that's, that's the process we're looking at. So... Uh, in the coming weeks, I don't know if we'll get there tonight, we're going to talk about genre, which is types of literature. The Bible, though it's one cohesive book with one divine author, capital A, it also is made up of, like any writing, a certain cultural historical context. And so we've talked before about the books of the Bible and how you've got the first five books, the books of Moses, which are in and of themselves historical but they sort of correspond to the Gospels in a way, in, in, in terms of their nature. The Gospels, likewise, are historical, telling factual events from history. But the books of Moses, called the Pentateuch, and the Gospels, all do so in a, with a particular theological point in mind. And the Holy Spirit led Moses to weave the story together in a certain way. You get to the history books, they are just plain, run-of-the-mill, blow-after-blow reporting, called historical narratives. Uh, the poetic books are uh, more in the Old Testament, more wisdom literature, giving us timeless truths and praises to, to God and truth about God and things like that, reflections on God's um, miracles and, and doings. Then the prof prophetic books, of course, involve both foretelling and foretelling. They spoke to their audience in their day on behalf of God, the Creator, giving rebukes and commendations and things like that, but they also spoke of future predictions that will come true someday. Uh, in the New Testament, the same thing. Uh, Paul's letters are a, a unique subset of the New Testament, 13 letters that give us a lot of doctrine and instruction about the church and about individual relationship with, Lord as, with the Lord as believers. Uh, the general letters, same basic type of literature, but just not authored by Paul, with the possible exception of Hebrews. We don't know for sure who wrote Hebrews. Uh, many scholars would, if you back them into a corner, would say Paul wrote it. That's my view. 
but I understand we can't say with, with any degree of dogmatism. And then you do have one purely prophetic book in the New Testament, and that's the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ as he comes back uh, to take the throne as promised him. All right, let's, uh, we've used this phrase a lot, and I want to kind of define it a little bit, the literal, grammatical, historical method. That is the one and only method for properly understanding Scripture, and not just Scripture, but any writing. You cannot understand writing if you come at it with this notion that I'm going to find the hidden, deeper, you know, mystical, sensationalized meaning. You've got to let the words on the page speak for themselves. And that's especially true when it comes to uh, the Word of God. And we call this, there are many different uh, Bible study methods out there taught in, in different schools and so forth that are all wrong and leading people astray, the only proper method is the literal grammatical historical method. And we're going to explain what we mean by that in a moment, but I want to give you some synonyms because that's kind of a mouthful. It's often abbreviated LGH, the LGH method. But what are we really saying when we are espousing this methodology? Well, we're saying that you're looking for the plain meaning. What does that mean? I mean, you're not looking for some secret meaning. You're looking for the plain meaning or the natural meaning or the normal meaning of the words on the page. This also involved, as is implied in the name, the historical setting. Right? You can't take 21st century definitions and go back centuries and apply them in Old English to the same word, which might mean something completely different back then. So clearly, words uh, take shape in a historical context. And that's why that's so important. Uh, another synonym would be customary. What's the, what's the customary meaning by that? Uh, you know, this is the way, you know, court cases are solved. They don't, you know, often you, when someone gives testimony, the judge and jury don't sit back there and say, well, I really think he meant something. He said, you know, he saw them shoot the person, but I think what he meant was he wanted a strawberry sundae. I mean, they don't get to determine what the words mean. They just take them at face value. Now, of course, people can be lying. We understand that. But it still doesn't change the fact that that's what they meant. They meant, I saw the person shoot the person. Customary. Grammatical, also in the name of this method, uh, implies that words mean things in a grammatical context. Now, in English, especially these days, we've gotten very poor at using grammar, and people often misspeak, um, you know, uh, like we'll say, uh, well, I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but often it's subject-verb uh, agreement. We'll use singular and, and then plural verbs or vice versa. Um, so, But the good thing about the Bible, as we're going to see, and as we've talked about already, is it doesn't make those kind of mistakes. So grammar can really make a difference, right? We've talked about that. I think I gave you some humorous examples early on, but you know, if we, if we have uh, a Thanksgiving dinner, if the table is set and the meal is served and one of the kids says, let's eat, Grandma. Well, let's eat, comma, Grandma means something totally different than let's eat, Grandma, without a comma. <laughs> right? Totally different. And it would be inaccurate and improper grammar to say, let's eat, Grandma. You need a comma. Right? So, uh, and there are lots of examples of that. So, grammatical considerations are very important, too. And we don't, when you're coming at the Bible looking for the secret mystical meaning, what, what the Reformers called you know, centuries ago in the 1500s, 1600s in Latin, the sensus plenior, the fuller sense, you know, they were able to take great liberties with the text, and regardless of the grammar, regardless of the, the words that were used, they just said, well, I think it means this. I divined the meaning through some type of secret code and got goosebumps, and that's how I knew that it meant that. So history and grammar are, are uh, critical. Another synonym would be simply the straightforward or face value meaning of the words. Um, now, often in English, when we're reading something, and the same thing is true of the Bible, when we're reading the Bible, we'll come across a word and we don't know what it means, right? That's why it's so important to read. You know, we've educated our kids at home and we've learned so much ourselves just from reading 
to them or with them or listening to them read or listening to books on tape because, you know, especially the older books, the classics, will say a word and we'll think, boy, I hadn't heard that word before. And we go look it up. So it doesn't mean that you'll always automatically know the meaning, but it does mean that words have meaning. Words have meaning. And we got to look up the meaning of those words and see how they're used in that context. Uh, a dictionary doesn't give us the technical uh, meaning of a word that is true in every context, but it gives us the range of meaning. So a dictionary, and we've talked about this before, but like with things like, uh, you know, apple. Well, an apple can be a red fruit, or for that matter, a green fruit or a yellow fruit. An apple can be uh, a type of computer that Christians use, like me. Uh, an apple can be a, a, a nickname for a big city, like New York City. So, but if you look up Apple in a comprehensive, exhaustive dictionary, you're going to see all of those range of meanings. You're not going to see something absurd that has never before been used, uh, where the word Apple has never been used that, that way. So a dictionary doesn't necessarily tell you exactly what a word means, but it tells you what it could mean. Context, he tells you what the word means. So let me give you a couple of definitions here of the what's often just truncated to literal interpretation. But understand when we use the term literal, we're using it in the sense of literal, grammatical, historical. Okay. So what is literal interpretation? This is from Paul Enns. Literal interpretation means that words and sentences of Scripture are understood in their normal meaning, the way that words are understood in normal communication. It wasn't some code language that you need a cryptologist to decipher. It was just the way the words were intended to be used. Um, it is a literal or normal meaning of words that is the basis of communication. I think I've said that ad nauseum in here. You, can't, you couldn't read any book. You couldn't understand any language if, if this wasn't the basis for communication. Um, but we also know that biblically there is precedence for interpreting the New Testament literally. For example, Old Testament prophecies like Psalm 22, that great messianic psalm. It talks about casting lots and, you know, those types of breaking bones and things. Uh, or Isaiah 7.14, as we're rapidly approaching the celebration of the birth of our Savior, Isaiah the prophet predicted he would be born of a virgin. And the New Testament comes along, and Matthew specifically applies the virgin birth to, Matt, to Isaiah, that it might be fulfilled by, you know, what he said. So there's a correspondence there between what was said and what actually happened. Micah 5, 2, he was born in Bethlehem. So we see uh, examples, and of course we could look throughout all kinds of literature and see the same thing, right? Uh, you know, when you get directions, back in the day before, you know, GPSs and stuff like that, and, and, and uh, smartphones and stuff, you know, the words meant something. And if you followed the directions in general, you'd get to your de destination. But you didn't get to say, well, he said turn right, but what I think he really meant was turn left. You know, you didn't get to make stuff up. It was the normal, natural use of the terminology. Now, this is important, and this is going to lead into what we're going to talk about probably uh, next week. But we'll see how far we get tonight. But we need to understand that the terminology. Literal interpretation does not preclude the use of figurative language. So very, very important. The opposite of literal is not figurative. The opposite of literal as a system of interpretation is, uh, is uh, allegorical, symbolic. It is, it is saying that the word said one thing, but I think it means something totally different. You come up with some fanciful allegorical meaning. So the really, at the broadest level, the two competing views on how to study scripture are literal and allegorical. Now, those who uh, practice allegorical interpretation don't necessarily always practice it from Genesis to Revelation. One of the biggest problems with the views of you know, amillennialists and covenant theologians and even reformed theologians is that they are literal in their understanding of many things, particularly prophecies that have already happened because they have no choice. It would be silly for them to say, well, Isaiah 7.14 didn't really mean he'd be a, born of a virgin, right? Of course, liberal scholars actually do say that because they have no use for anything the Bible says, and they think the Bible is full of errors. But I'm talking about conservative, you know, Bible-believing Christians. So for historical events, they practice literal interpretation. 
for prophecies that relate to Christ's first advent, they practice literal interpretation. But when it comes to prophecies related to the second advent, the kingdom, the temple, then they shift their methodology and they shift into allegory. So let me give you a classic example. Ezekiel the prophet, in the last nine chapters of his prophecy, gives a beautiful, glorious description of the future temple from which Christ the Messiah will reign when he comes back. They take those who, who think the church has replaced Israel and there's no future for Israel, they take Ezekiel 40 to 48, those nine chapters, as completely metaphorical and allegorical. In spite of the fact that it gives the dimensions, the materials, the description, oh, it's just one big metaphor. It has, that's not really talking about a real temple. Well, why would you say that when the other, and they do the same thing in Isaiah, when you get to 65, he's not talking about a literal earthly kingdom when the lion will lay down with the lamb. We read that, uh, I don't remember when we read it, but I have a memory that we just read it either Sunday or something. But anyway, they say, well, he's not talking about a literal kingdom, even though in chapter 7 he's talking about a literal virgin. Somehow within a few chapters he shifts and now he's making stuff up that has no basis in what the words on the page say. So very important to understand that the opposite of literal is allegorical. Literal interpretation clearly makes use of figures of speech. We, we, we do it all the time. As I've said before, I just did. I said we do it all the time, which is hyperbole. That's a figure of speech. I didn't literally mean I'm all the time using figures of speech. Um, so we use figures of speech. Every language uses them. We're going to look at several figures of speech in the Old and New Testament alike. And, it, and even though a figure of speech may be being employed, like a simile, like like or as, we can still arrive at the literal grammatical historical meaning of that phrase. Um, literal interpretation considers the grammatical and historical context of the passage. So that, that's the key point. Yes? So we'll start with rabbis. So <coughs> rabbis gain followers to their teaching. Yes. Okay. Are, are we literally now at the very beginning already in the middle of this issue about how do we interpret the Bible? Do we interpret it or do we just take it at its word? Is that where the momentum got started? Well, the question is about the rabbis. You're talking about back in the first century? Uh, the yeah. So certainly bad teaching of God's word is nothing new. Old Testament prophets dealt with that too. They were competing false prophets that were twisting the words of Yahweh and trying to make them mean something they didn't. But in the first century, it really reached new heights. You had a group of uh, folks uh, called the, um, it'll, it's, the name escapes me, in a, but it'll come to me in a second, but they were, it called, it's called Second Temple Hermeneutics, where they would take these wild, fanciful interpretations of the New Testament in the second, third centuries and, and, and apply them to their day. Um, and a bunch of them moved out to the called the area of Qumran, same area where we found the Dead Sea Scrolls centuries later, uh, and uh, kind of camped out there almost in like a cult or a sect. And they gained a lot of adherence because they were giving these wild interpretations that, you know, uh, Nero was the Antichrist, for example. Sound familiar? Still doing people doing that today, aren't they? That so-and-so is the Antichrist, and we're in the tribulation, and the vaccine is the mark of the beast, you know, those kinds. Of, so it's nothing new, really. But, uh, uh, boy, I wish I could think of the name of it. Someone's going to email me and tell me, and I'm going to feel bad. But anyway, uh, there was that, that was very prevalent in, in, I shouldn't say very, it was certainly a substantive group, subsets, who were twisting the words of, of the New Testament writers and of the apostles. And we very much see it today. Now, there's the sort of the theological bent of those who, who aren't consistent in their literal interpretation, who we, we would hasten to say love the Lord, they value his word, they're conservative, they believe in inerrancy, they love Jesus. They just have inconsistent or in some cases really bad, you know, hermeneutic, Bible study method. But there's also another whole brand who are willfully and intentionally twisting the scriptures, Peter talks about this in 2 Peter 2, who are doing it for their own selfish gain, to gain popularity, to gain money, to gain power. We see a lot of that today, too. Um, yeah? I guess what I... So I, I get all that. 
is that why you, people were so startled when Jesus began his ministry? Even as a child, they were stunned as he taught in the temple. And, and it, was it because the, the, the truth was so obvious against what had been taught up to that point? Oh, yeah. I think that's exactly right. The, the comment was that that's why Jesus' message was such an offense and such a stumbling block for the, the scribes and Pharisees and the Jewish leaders of his day because he spoke with authority. He's obviously spoke the truth. He is the truth. And he was saying things about the prophets, which that's all they had at that time was the Old Testament, that had been ignored and, and, and twisted and turned. So after 400 years between you know, Malachi and the coming of Christ, where they didn't have any new prophecy from God written, um, they had really devolved into you know, a, a completely corrupt Jewish leadership system. And they were in cahoots with Rome, and they were uh, all about power and control and lording it over people, and there was very few remnant of, of believers that really were truly looking for the Messiah. Remember, the crowds who cried, you know, Hosanna, Hosanna, bless us, you come in the name of the Lord, were vastly smaller than the crowds four days later that cried, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas, right? So there was always a remnant, um, but the, the, you know, the ruling class of the day within uh, Judaism was, was bankrupt, was corrupt, yeah. Could you apply that kind of false teaching to the Roman Catholic Church before the printing press? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Roman Roman Catholicism is just an extension of the corruption and false teaching that was prevalent in Jesus' day. And of course, uh, if you know much about the history of Roman Catholicism, and this is no offense to any of Catholics that might be listening, um, but you need to do your research. You need to understand what what the history of it is, the Dark Ages, and what really went on inside the Vatican, what, what really goes on underneath the Vatican, and what, what they're uh, what they're doing. I, did, I talked about yesterday on the podcast how the Pope is meeting with a high-level Muslim. I think this was the article you sent me and uh, inaugurating a new building in uh, Abu Dhabi uh, that's going to be the center of the one world religion, right? The Pope. So, yeah, it's, uh, you could apply, that was your question, you could apply this uh, description of false teaching to any false teacher and it's just a matter of degree. Now, I try to be gracious and understanding because I understand there's great scholars and great men and women of God who I respect who just aren't consistent. And, I, and it bothers me, but I try not to brush them aside. And, oh, you're a terrible hellbound, like the guy that emailed me last week who didn't agree with me on something. So he says, your teaching is coming from demons and you're, you know, you're sending people to hell. You know, well, okay, I'm sorry you feel that way, but... I'm not, I may not be right. I'm pretty sure I am on that issue, you know, but I'm certain I'm not right on everything I teach. But I, I genuinely try to be consistent in handling the Word of God from a literal, grammatical, historical perspective. Um, so I, I really, you know, respect that crowd more than I do the charlatans that are out there. And the Bible, you know, certainly has some harsh things to say about those charlatans. Um, so, yeah. Understanding of literal interpretation correct. Um, in Revelation, there's reference to Babylon, right? uh -huh. and people have said it's a literal city where Babylon was. Other people have said no, it's Rome, it's New York. Now those other alternatives are not allegorical. Um, so, is it a different literal interpretation that they're? So the question is about Babylon and the identification of Babylon. And that's a great question that we're going to talk about explicitly Sunday morning. And I'm going to show you uh, in our 9 o'clock hour Old Testament references. I don't know that we'll get through it all in one week, but in the coming weeks for sure, I'm going to show you how the term Babylon within Scripture, this goes back to our five-step process. You've got to compare Scripture with Scripture. You can't just pull one passage out of, um, you know, uh, Babylon first appears in Revelation 14 when he says Babylon Babylon has fallen. I think it's 14 verse 9, I think, maybe 8. But anyway, right in there. Uh, and then in chapter 18, it really talks at length about it. You can't just pull one verse out and say, 
this absolutely means the literal Babylon. It, it, the term Babylon is one of those terms that can be used metaphorically. And the context will determine that. So we're going to do an exercise in the coming weeks. I've already got it in my presentation, but I wanted to lay some groundwork first called figuring out the figurative. And there are some clues in general that will tell you whether this is meant to be figurative or not, right? And so Babylon is a key player going all the way back to the Tower of Babel in this cosmic struggle between God and Satan. And there's no question that the literal city of Babylon will be rebuilt. But as we're going to talk about Sunday, and I think we've already talked a little bit about this, that the, the, the headquarters of the Antichrist geographically will be Babylon. But it's a global empire. So he has outposts all over the place. And the religious uh, division, if you want to call it that, could very well be Rome. That seems to make the most sense because the Roman Catholicism has always been trying to conquer the world and make everyone uh, follow their religion. But what we know is going to happen according to Scripture is that it's not going to be one uh, specific religion. It's going to be a pluralistic religion. And already the Pope is out there trying to say, let's all work together, called pluralism. So that's one place where you could, in that sense, call uh, you know, Rome a Babylon. Uh, the financial headquarters is another division of the Antichrist's regime. And, you know, it might say, you know, you might, if it happens today, if the rapture were to happen in our day, maybe that's New York City. Right now, it's certainly a global financial center. Who, who knows? So the point is, there's, there's one physical geographic location of Babylon that has its tentacles throughout the globe. And, and the, the analogy that I've used is similar to the the uh, president, you know, the president, you know, rule or <laughs> rules, depends who the president, I guess, serves, uh, presides, you know, from the White House, right? But if he travels to Camp David, or if he's on Air Force One, or, you know, he's still the president, he's still in charge, and, and people still, you know, would refer to the seat of power as being wherever he is. Doesn't mean that there's not a literal White House. Does that make sense? Yes, thank yeah. you. So, um, but to, to your point, just to, again, try to clarify, you can take the passages that talk about Babylon and ask the question, what does this mean in its literal, grammatical, historical uh, context? Sometimes the term Babylon is used as a metaphor for something else. Sometimes it's used as a geographic location, right? So, um, you know, context has to remain, but allegorical would say, you know, would make something up completely fanciful that has no basis in the text anywhere. Thank you. Okay. So um, any other questions about literal interpretation? Because from here on out, we're going to start giving you some uh, practical things to help employ this. And, you know, I believe error in interpretation always stems from a failure to consistently practice literal hermeneutics. So like, I, I am an, an adherent of and a teacher of the literal grammatical historical method, but sometimes I get interpretations wrong. It's a process. I've studied for 32 years. Sometimes I might not arrive at the right conclusion. I'm not infallible, right? But if I do in those cases, it's not because I've jettisoned the methodology. It's because I've not employed the methodology consistently. I deviated from it. I let my presuppositions and my prior beliefs kind of eke in and fail to, you know, cause me to fail to see the context clearly. And so that's why it's a process, lifelong, of continuing to study and always coming at it with a blank slate. And that leads us to the basic approach, and I know you've heard this, can be summarized in three steps. You know, I've got my five steps in the process, but how do you actually do that? Well, it's very simple. Observation, interpretation, and then application. You've got to pay attention. You've got to observe what the text says. Observation, interpretation, then application. So when you're observing the text, you want to look for things that are emphasized or things that are repeated, things that are related, like synonyms, things that are alike or un unlike, things that are particularly profound, right? That's just observation. You know, uh, sometimes when I read people's uh, commentary on a particular passage, I just shake my head and I think, talk about burying the lead. 
they missed the entire point of that passage because they zeroed in on some obscure fact. So these are just a few ideas here of things that you should look for. I think this is, uh, I got this from Howard Hendricks, who I had for Bible study methods at Dallas. But, and this is not comprehensive at all, but just an idea of what do we mean when we say observation. You know, if you, if you don't let the text speak for itself, you're going to be off base right from the beginning. And then when you finally arrive at the interpretation and even application, you're going to, you're going to, it could be really dangerous. You know, I've, I've pointed out when Jesus said, if your eye offends you, gouge it out. If you take that one verse, rip it out of context, and apply it without regard for the history, the grammar, the, what's going on in the context, you'll probably hurt yourself, you know. But there's an example, by the way, of a figure of speech. Jesus was using a figure of speech, hyperbole, to make a point, right? Uh, so, again, uh, you know, you want to look for things that are emphasized, repeated, related, alike, unlike. So I thought we would test our observation skills uh, tonight. So if you have something to write on, or maybe you can type it onto your phone, I'm going to put a picture up for three minutes. I'll set a timer on my phone. Then I'm going to ask you ten questions about this picture. And we'll see how good your observation skills are. All right? Let me get my uh, timer set up here. <clears throat> Three minutes. All right, so just, you know, I guess you could write things down if you want, but mainly I just want you to focus on the picture, and then we'll ask these questions, and I'm going to have you write down your answers, and then we'll come back and answer them. All right, so three minutes starts now. If you're watching the live stream or watching the video, we're just doing an exercise right now where you're observing this picture for three minutes. We're already two minutes, so we've already had a minute go by. And then I'm going to ask some questions about this uh, picture. And when we answer those questions, I will uh, put the picture back up so you can see that I'm not teasing you. Got one minute left. Okay, about 20 seconds. Now, if you were real smart, you would have taken a picture of it with your camera and cheated. That's what Tom Brady and Bill Belichick would do. <laughs> of course, I like to call him Bill Belichick. But anyway, that's another story. All right, well, that's, uh, that's close to three minutes. So, all right, here's the first question. On what side of the picture is the American flag? Uh, let's say you can write it down just or at least keep track of your score because I'd like to see who got the best score in the group. Um, but so just answer out loud. Yeah, who, left. left. Very good. Yep. It was on the left hand side. All right. Excluding the color of the letters, what color was the photo album that the little girl is reading? Blue. Blue. Everybody agree? You sure? 
You might think it was green. I don't think it was green. The one in front of her was red. You're right, it was blue. I'm just trying to see how confident you are in your, in your answers. All right, how many windows were shown in the picture? Two. Two? That's right. Two windows. Uh, what color is the rocking horse? White. white. Wow, that's impressive. Mm -hmm. I think I missed that one the first thing because it's kind of in the background. But yes, it was white. Uh, what is hanging from the ceiling? Tiffany. Yeah, a stained glass lamp. Probably was a Tiffany. In an attic. It's a nice attic. Uh, what is the teddy bear in? Trunk or chest, very good. So clearly I let you look at this way too long. I should have limited it to a minute. Uh, what color is the little doll's dress? Yellow. I am really impressed. Um, is there a record on the Victrola? Yes. Wow. You guys are brilliant. Uh, what is hanging on the back wall? That's impressive. I am really impressed. All right, and the last one: uh, Are the stairs leading to the attic on the right or the left? Right. Very good. Wow. All right. So, how'd you do? It sounds like anybody not get them all, and not afraid to admit it. You didn't see the stairs, yeah. So this is a good point. He said, I didn't see the stairs. Well, that, you know, you can see the obvious application to what we're talking about with the Word of God. There are certain things that if you read hastily, you might skip over and you might miss. And then sometimes you go back and you're like, wow, I never made that connection. That happens to me all the time. Often when, it's, when I'm hearing someone else speak about a passage, I think, wow, man, I've studied that passage for years, taught it. I never thought about that. Great point, you know. And that's so, what's so wonderful about the Word of God is it's, it's so deep you can never get to the bottom, but it's so shallow even a child can really understand some truths about it. So, um, so we're kind of at the end of our time, but next week we'll start out with looking at 24 rules of interpretation and uh, these are really helpful things to remember most of them are fairly intuitive you'll 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 think wow yeah of course that's obvious but some of them are really helpful when you come across troubling passages and you you, you remember them so it's not like it's something you would memorize all 24 but you do need to understand there are some basic rules that reflect the literal grammatical historical uh, approach and so we'll uh, we'll pick up with that next time since we're right at seven o'clock. Any closing thoughts or questions tonight? Yes. Someone sends you a Bible verse and says, "Hey, JB, I thought of this and I sent it to you. Do you actually take it at face value, or do you do what you're telling us to do?" So when someone the question is when someone sends you a Bible verse and says, "Hey, the Lord put this verse on my heart for you," uh, do you take it at face value, or do you employ this? Well, honestly, instinctively. I always kind of do this, but most of the time, especially if it's a familiar verse, it just happens quick because we know it, we know the context, we understand it. It's, but, but often, many times, there's a verse that, that's obscure. I haven't heard it before or not in a long time. It doesn't ring a bell. So I absolutely go look it up, look at the context, and see kind of what it means. Now, this goes back to a discussion that we had some time ago, and Ken, I think, was really providing some good back and forth and some good thought about this and that is the distinction between application and meaning or significance and meaning so in a case like that if if someone was praying and they send me a text or an email and says hey i just lord put this verse on my heart for you i thought i'd send it to you at that moment i'm not necessarily uh, worried about how they interpret it, I'm going to say, I'm going to trust that somehow the Holy Spirit wanted me to have that verse, but for me to apply it, I have to know something about what it meant, and if I don't already know that, then I kind of dig a little deeper, and it, you know, usually you can figure it out pretty quick. Um, so I'm not, I don't want to make it sound like anytime someone sends me a verse, I'm critiquing 
them are thinking, well, they have no idea what it means. Well, they, they, they might not have been studying it. They may have just said it would be an instrument of the Lord at that moment to, to pass on an encouraging verse. The Word of God is quick and powerful. Uh, I do that all the time because, frankly, I find more often than not I don't have the words to say. And so I just let the Bible speak. And I just you know, think about a verse that might be meaningful to the person, and I send them a, a verse as a word of encouragement. And uh, can't go wrong with that because then it's in the Holy Spirit's hands, you know. So, um, so yeah, good question. Any, any other comments or questions? Um, one last thing that popped into my mind that I, I wanted to mention about literal versus allegorical. A classic example of that is the, is the definition of the church in Israel. And when people allegorize Scripture, they take passages in the Old Testament that are plainly intended to speak of national Israel, and they turn around and twist them and say, well, no, that's talking about the church. Well, there's no basis in the historical grammatical context for that at all. None. You're coming along several centuries later, taking something that God revealed in the New Testament. The church is never mentioned in the Old Testament, not one time. And Paul calls it a mystery, something new. And you're taking something new and you're, you're using it to interpret allegorically something in the Old Testament. So that's the biggest example. It's called replacement theology. And people who do that are allegorizing Scripture, whether they're ever admitted or not. And what's funny is back in the 50s and, and, and say even 40s, but certainly 50s and 60s, when theological seminaries were you know, debating these topics, I can remember John Walvoord, who I had at Dallas Seminary. He was already in his 80s by then. Um, he would tell stories, and we would have to read some of the old books that they wrote, where he would uh, debate or get into book wars, where a guy would write a book, and another guy writes a rejoinder or critique, and another guy writes a rejoinder, and they're kind of going back and forth in a good-natured way. Um, and uh, he would, you know, guys like O.T. Alice, which was, who was an amillennialist, you know, they would readily own and admit that their method of interpretation is called the allegorical method. That's what they used for their time. And it wasn't until you got into the late 80s and in the 90s that people started recognizing that it's more politically correct to say literal. So now everybody says, I practice literal interpretation. But they don't. They, they don't. They practice their version of literal interpretation. Um, so this isn't like a straw man. I mean, it is going back, if you read the literature, that they really believed that they have the right to practice census plenior, that is, to seek the fuller sense of the text, to look between the, the lines on the page, to look beyond the words, and divine spiritually the secret meaning of it. They really believe that that's the way you're supposed to interpret Scripture. And the more creative you are, then the more spiritually or you must really be in touch with God because he revealed something to you about that verse that I could never see well that's because it wasn't there but uh, they think it was there so they owned their you know brand of Bible study method but now it's really confusing because people are using the same term literal and they mean something totally different by it that's why we want to go through and talk about some of these rules and what do we mean by LGH <laughs> Does God not like that? I would have to say so, because it's His Word, right? Right, so I mean, isn't that dangerous? Well, I do believe. That's why James says, be not many teachers, because we're held to a higher standard, and I think those who are teaching false doctrine are, are going to be held accountable someday, no question about it. So, and now, you know, there's a difference, as I've said, between a believer who means well and is just mishandling Scripture, which we all do to a greater or lesser degree at some time, uh, and those who are intentionally, willfully twisting the words of God like false prophets. But, uh, yeah, no, I think it grieves the Lord when he said, I've given you everything you need for life and godliness right here. And people take it and twist it and don't have any regard for it. Most people today don't see the Bible as the only standard for their beliefs, attitudes, and practices. So to them, this whole discussion is like, who cares how you interpret the Bible? It's just one source. I might read Shakespeare or I might meet, read Aristotle or whatever. Oh, yeah, the Bible has some good things to say. For us, it's central. The cent centrality of the Scripture for life and practice. That's what we believe, at least at Not By Works and Plum Creek Chapel.
Isn't that one of Satan's deceptions, though? Yeah. Started right from the beginning. That is exactly one of Satan's deceptions. Has God really said? Twisting God's words and t changing the meaning of God's words. No question. It's an attack on language. Yeah. And that's the reason you've heard me say this before, but the German atheist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, Nietzsche said, I, I, fear we have, I fear we are not getting rid of God because we still believe in grammar. Because he knew that if you want to get rid of God, you gotta you got to throw grammar out. Because the Bible, at its plain, straightforward, face-value meaning, declares there's a God. And so that's what they've been trying to do is destroy language. It's called deconstructionism. So, All right, well, awesome. Thank you. We'll see you Sunday. Looking forward to a great uh, Lord's Day. And uh, we'll have the video of this uh, posted here shortly. Thank you.